This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. So you've been on the show before, but do you just want to give us a reminder yep. of who you are and what your background is? Sure. Yeah. My name is Fritz Edler. I'm a 40 plus year rail veteran, uh, different capacities, uh, and also as a, as a uh, officer of different unions, uh, most recently the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. Uh, which is part of the Teamsters Union, and I uh, stopped running trains actively in 2015. Since that time, I've done a lot of defense work and mostly uh, uh, work as a, a uh, special representative for Railroad Workers United, which is an interunion cross-craft solidarity advocacy group uh, that operates in North America, and I'm based in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and you know, every time we've talked about uh, trains before, obviously, you know, one disaster uh, that stands out in the you know history of North American railroading is the Lac Megantic. Um, you know, that's during my time as an activist. But to be honest, you know, I even it kind of like, you know, there's so many things that go on that it kind of blends into the background. And I'm sure a lot of other people don't recall all the details there. Do you want to just give a quick uh overview of what happened in the Lac Megantic wreck? Sure, um, I can do that. Um, yeah. It's actually, uh, it's, a, it's a story that is not just politically important and socially important, whatever, but for me personally, it's become a lot more personal because I know a lot of the individuals and things. So just let me back up a little bit. 2013, uh, July 6, 2013, an overlong train of exclusively uh, Bakken volatile crude oil uh, was run on a, it had actually, you know, originated in the Bakken oil fields and had made its way all across the border between the U.S. and Canada, passing through every major city along that route. And then when it got to um, Montreal, basically, it switched off of, uh, I guess, the Canadian Pacific and onto a short line that ran through the eastern townships of Quebec, pretty rural area. And uh, the, this was a little short line that had been spun off by the Canadian Pacific. It uh, was owned by the uh, a short line operator in the United States called Rail World Incorporated, the main, uh, the CEO of which was a guy named Ed Burkhart. Ed Burkhart had already burned one town uh, in Weawaga, I think it is, Wisconsin, in '96, uh, had he had become a sort of a lion of the industry for his lean and mean operating style, which basically meant cutting out all kinds of redundancy and safety measures and things like that. So in this case, he had decided that they had decided that running these uh, overlong trains of Bakken crude oil, which is it, it, it's a pretty new product. I don't know if folks understand this, but it it hasn't been something that has been transported in any, you know, big numbers for more than 
maybe 15 years at most, I think. Right. Uh, and the and as a result, a lot of things just weren't up to speed. And it wasn't just the people on the MMA that made these mistakes, but generally speaking in the industry, they just like, well, we technically can carry it, so we should carry it without doing the due diligence that's necessary. So people all around the world on July 6th, 2013, watched in horror as they watched the town burn. And this was a wreck that killed 47 people instantly. And then another, uh, maybe three people who have died since that time, a lot of it survivor guilt and things of that sort. It's a major tragedy. It destroyed the downtown of this little town. And, and this town, by the way, is in many demographic kinds of ways the same as East Palestine, Ohio. They're both five to 6,000 people. They're both relatively rural. Um, the rail uh, just pass through their communities, you know, on the way to do other kinds of things. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but the thing that stood out about the Lac Megantic wreck and the thing that most people in the U.S. missed, I mean, a lot of them, if you, if you say, well, do you remember a big fiery wreck in 2013? A lot of people will say yes, but they don't right. remember right. what happened afterwards. Now, um, uh, the, the big thing for us in Railroad Workers United and in Railroad Workers in many parts of the world was, once again, when the bad thing happens that has, was essentially predictable, and, and this was one of the reasons why I always try to make sure I don't call this an accident, I call it right, a wreck, right. and one that was basically inevitable based on the, the numerous kinds of things by policy that they did, they uh, decided to try and pin this horrific result on the last guys in the chain of bad decision-making. So in this case, it was the guy who was the engineer of the train, the sole crew member of the train. It was run with only one person, uh, his dispatcher, and then also a, lo a low-level manager, um, a guy named Jean Demetre. And um, so this is Tom Harding and uh, Richard Labrie. And uh, they criminally charged them for the deaths of the people who died, among other, many other kinds of charges and things. And this was all sort of started out by Ed Burkhart, the guy who owned the short line, where initially when he came, he, he bragged about Harding being a hero. And many people in the town regarded him as a hero because he had gone to the scene of the wreck and had helped uh, move several cars of unexploded uh, Bakken away right, right. from the from the wreck site, which presumably, you know, was a was a big a big help. Uh, but later, it's, it was convenient and, and potentially very and, and potentially very dangerous to him as well. Oh like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, putting absolutely. himself in well, the line of uh, danger to uh, to try. So to anyway, so Burkhart made the decision that that Harding was the guy and it was all his fault, not any of the other long, long, long list of, of policy things that had happened. And the government went with it. And this is now the government, even though the setup for all of this happened under the conservative government, the Harper government, uh, all of the prosecution stuff all took place under the Trudeau administration. And uh, so uh, that that it, the thing that made the difference, because it is really common that when these bad things happen, the railroads and the regulators blame the last guy, but they blame right. the work. 
But yeah. in this particular case, the thing that was different was that the people in the town instinctively knew from the beginning that and in a way that it would be expressed to me when I was in the streets there and in the press and other things like that was they got the wrong guy. They didn't get the guy who set the, the set the situation up. They didn't get the people, the whole chain of people right. who cavalierly made the decisions that ended up in the destruction of the town. So that meant that there was an opening there that we often don't have because a lot of times you, you go to a town and, and they don't distinguish between what the last people in the chain on, on the job on the, have to do and the decisions they have to make and those that are made in the boardroom. Right. So this was a big opportunity and we, and we did an international defense and I, and it wasn't our work that did this. Uh, it was the people of Quebec that understood it, but they were acquitted. They were acquitted of those charges and that was a big victory. And even though we didn't want a criminal trial, one of the things about the criminal trial and it's relevant to what we're talking about is that the government had 40 witnesses mm -hmm. that were all supposed to be part of the proof that these guys were the last guys. Every one of those 40 people spilled the beans in the criminal trial right. on things that went on that are not supposed to be the way that things went on. Everything from overloading the cars to just uh, the, the refusal to do even very simple, quick things in order to make that train safer to not having a fire plan. I mean, right. who does this? Who, who, you know, you, you, you get together something that's the most explosive, the most, you know, uh, uh, flammable thing. And you don't say, well, what if, what if, right. you know, so they, they didn't do that. And as a result, it was a terrific uh, situation in that case. So that's why the reason, and there's another reason why this 10 years uh, anniversary is important with respect to what we're talking about, about East Palestine. And that is that now they have 10 years of knowledge right. of right. what the forever um, after product, if you want to call, I don't know what you want to call it, the chemicals right. that are created by the burning of a toxic chemical. So in Megantic, it was volatile crude oil. In East Palestine, it was vinyl chloride and other things. And we already know that uh, the vinyl chloride burning created phosgene gas, which is a World War I trench warfare gas, as well as uh, uh, some other products. But the bigger question, and it's, it actually is drawn in the, the EPA, because the EPA has known for over a decade that, that uh, dioxins, for example, are one of the right. products that comes from these kinds of situations, and they haven't traced them. And they didn't they they weren't going to trace them in the East Palestine wreck until weeks after the event when various evidence and public pressure put them in a situation where they had to decide to do that. Right. Now we have to hold their feet to the fire because they generally have been using Norfolk Southern to gather the evidence on the wreck that Norfolk Southern set in place. Right. So, uh, the, so the reason why Megantic is important in this regard is, is that you can now, you know, you now have a laboratory of what happens over the course of the years after the wreck, after all the rails back in place and the trains are running again and whatnot. And so that's another of the stories of Megantic. But Megantic is a showcase for every part of this. And that's why we have to make sure we connect those two. And frankly, we have to connect them with what went on in Greece as well. Mm -hmm. And in so the Greece wreck. Right. And so with Lac Megantic, 
Um, you had, like you said, the fiery wrecked 46 people killed instantly. And then they've been dealing with these forever chemicals and, um, you know, uh, you know, leaching, I'm sure, leaching into the soil, the air, the water and everything else. And now we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary. And we've seen now in uh, East Palestine, Ohio, which I think is getting a lot, a lot of coverage, um, you know, and like you said, have been uh, people have been holding their feet to the fire. There's been more uh, organizing around it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that rail workers were uh, talking about and voted to uh, go on strike last year. And then the federal government stepped in uh, essentially to block them uh, from doing that. We saw, uh, you know, the the length, the train length and size played a role in the uh, East Palestine situation as well. Seems pretty clear. Uh, we had Alan Shaw, he uh, head of Norfolk Southern, uh, testifying the other day, claiming that I'm not aware of any data that links crew size with safety. Um, you know, obviously, safety was a huge concern for workers that were uh, voting to go on strike. Do you want to just talk about the East Palestine situation and then specifically about the big, you know, the big safety concerns as far as, you know, crews and as far as uh, the size of some of these trains? I mean, people don't even know, right? The you know, what, yeah, what well, so it, you know, there are, of course, differences. You know, in the East Palestine situation, there was a adequate, adequate crew. Right. Uh, there was a conductor and an engineer and a trainee as well, and that did play a safety role in that result. Mm -hmm. in, the, in that that crew was able to pull their locomotive power and uh, away from the scene of the wreck and to be on hand with some specific knowledge about the train, because one of the big problems in all these situations is always, you know, when the bad thing happens and first responders show up, uh, do the first first responders usually pretty well think that they know what to do with fires and things like that, right. but do they in the specifics? Right. So is it, is it the kind of a cargo that is now out, you know, wrecked that if you put water on it, you actually make it more dangerous, you know, things of this nature. So the, and many, especially smaller rural places, their first responders don't have uh, really proper training for the kinds of unique kinds of situations like this. Like right. I'm pretty sure nobody trained on what you do in response to a leak of vinyl chloride. You know? Right. <laughs> Uh, they might have some general stuff, but the point is, is that having the crew there, I mean, whether you whether or not you buy the idea that it's a good idea to run a train that has um, uh, that can only stop and move forward, and that's the only thing that it can conceivably do, which is what happened in Lac Megantic. Now, you know, keep right. in mind, in Lac Megantic, it was a single person crew member, uh, and not only was it a single person crew but they didn't even have anybody to call. He was working on his day off because they're all of their regular people, the people who should have been, you know, were all exhausted and unable to work. Right. So yeah. it, it, one of the things that happens is that the, that the railroads, and it's not just railroads, it's pretty much every industry. Yep. They, they, they decide that what they'll, you know, they get a limit as far as they can go if there are any regulations. And then they say, we won't just have that be our limit for the disaster. We'll make it the everyday limit. So, right. you know, one of the things that happens on the railroad is that they convince the government that they should be able in the event of trouble to, you know, work people up to 12 hours every day. 
and 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 then when they get that permission with the argument that you have to be able to respond to things that you didn't expect then they say no we'll do that every day that's just the norm we won't there won't be any margin there won't be any extra you know so but uh, so it, it, between the two wrecks one of the things that is a, a key thing in both is deregulation the harper government and I'm not going to pick on them more than so much because th this is a very bipartisan thing in both countries, right. had initiated this whole concept that was weaponized by Donald Trump of if you want a new regulation, you have to take off one or two others mm. that, you know, just in an arbitrary kind of a way. So the Harper government had, had begun this in Canada, making, getting rid of, um, regulate all sorts of regulations and basically saying that the best people to regulate rail safety and rail uh, efficiency and service are the railroads themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, one of the problems there was that the tanks that were supposed to carry this product had a weight limit. Bach and crude turns out to be extremely heavy. And as a result, if you don't exceed the weight limit of the car, you're going to leave it half full or something along those lines. This is one of the things that came out because of the criminal trial. Well, if you leave it up to the industry to do it, you have this problem where people say, I'm not sending this car out of here half full. Are you crazy? Right. And so you ended up with cars that were woefully inadequate to the purpose of protecting the public and for speed or for capacity or whatever. And then it was made that much worse by those things. In the case of East Palestine, there are going to be more things that come out. But what we know about right now is one of the most critical things is the, is the system of defect detectors that are, we call them hot box detectors. They're, they're wayside devices that tell if there's going to be a bearing failure if a bearing failure is something that's going on we're we're pretty confident that the proximate cause of the wreck in east palestine is exactly one of these failed bearings it's a 19th century style phenomenon that uh you know used to wreck trains a lot and and the whole our whole history of, of rail safety activism in large part is tied to let's make sure we don't melt any more axles and have any more wrecked with axles. So right. the Norfolk Southern had uh, defect detectors in place, even though they had decimated the workforce that was specialized to be able to maintain them and knew them back and forward and, and were technically experts on them. They got they were five of those employees in that section specialized in those detector, detectors and they're zero today. They just took all that work and gave it to others without necessarily the special training and just extending all the stuff that they have to review. The most important part of this is that they're not regulated. Right. They're not right. federally regulated. They're all self-regulated. So as the evidence appears right now, it seems like the big problem is, is that they decided that they didn't think it was worth notifying the crew that right. they had a successive failing bearing situation. So the evidence is that they had a defector, three diff detectors out is detecting a rise in temperature, but they don't tell the crew. The next one is showing a much bigger rise in temperature, but they don't tell the crew. Then the third one, by the time it has actually reached the critical point, which is basically essentially the melting point, uh, 
it finally notifies the crew. The crew tries to stop the train, but it's too late at that point. So even with all the bad things that I've described about the way that they run this and the lack of the regulation, it's true in both cases, this didn't have to happen if they had a policy that tracked the successive events. And if they didn't try to cram down and make sure that there's fewer and fewer people doing the job of that used to be done by a whole lot of people so that things get lost. One of the problems that happened in Megantic was that you they just kept changing things on their own, changing policies on their own and not even telling anybody that the changes had been made. Yeah, I mean, that's really scary and that's really dangerous. I mean, if you don't have regulations from just to put what you're saying into uh, another, there's no standard. Uh, you know, across the industry of like what is considered an overheated bearing, for example, right? That, you know, that one one uh, train company could say, well, this isn't that hot. We can still run the train. And another company could say, well, that's that's getting to the point where we want to notify somebody. But basically mm-hmm. they just do, you know, and this is with people's lives and with these towns that they go through with these mm-hmm. uh, overloaded trains. This is putting people at risk every day. There's a, what, a a train, uh, a derailment of some kind, what, like every three days on average, something like that. I wouldn't be surprised if it was more uh, derailments. Right. Now, granted, you know, understand there are such things as minor derailments. Right, right, right of know? course. But uh, and that does happen for a lot of different kinds of reasons. But d- d- there's a lot of derailments and the number of derailments per ton per mile or whatever you want to say is going up, even though the mm-hmm. industry will disingenuously claim to the contrary. They can you know, say, you know, this many incidents or whatever like that. But the difference is, is that they've stopped running as many trains. They run fewer right. and fewer trains. They run them longer and longer. And heavier and, and heavier. Yeah, heavier and heavier. And and so and this is another of the things that you have to really pay attention to is that it just like in the case of the Bach and Crude, where they just said, Well, you know, it's a product, we can move it. We don't have to study it. We don't have to see what right. uh, you know could be done. And there's a profit motive there too, which is that the thing that really makes the Bakken dangerous is the dissolved gases in it. And they know this. They absolutely know this. And there's places like Texas where the same kind of product is taken out and then they remove those gases from the from the product. And then that makes them less dangerous. And then they could be transported like we have for the last 150 years without destroying towns. But right. uh, but the but the thing in the case of in Megantic was is that uh, that they needed to get it to the refineries at the coast and they wanted those products in the refineries at the coast for the profit that was from those things but it just made it much more dangerous made it so um you know ridiculously dangerous when it didn't have to be right and as far and as far as the crew issue uh you know like i think people would probably think and they might be wrong that you know you'd want to have a fail safe uh, you know, uh, systems in place that you'd never want to just have one system in place. And I think, I don't know that it takes a lot of study, you know, I'm for evidence as well, but I don't know that it takes a lot of study to figure out that, you know, two crew is better than one. And that, you know, if something happens with the first person, or like you said, they're dealing with uh, uh, first responders, or they're dealing with some other aspect of a, uh, of a derailment that, you know, you want to have a second person there. I mean, I'm a nurse. And, you know, any any emergency situation or unforeseen situation, like you, you can't even open a unit, actually, 
uh, like in the hospital without at least two nurses there. That's like the, that's like the basic. And that's kind of the same thing. You know, if you have something unforeseen, I I don't think, you know, most people would want to be in that situation in almost any workplace uh, where there would be only one person. And so that's uh, absolutely two person crews should be the minimum, which is what, you know, Railroad Workers United was, is calling for. Yeah, well, and this is, you know, a lot of people have the experience they fly somewhere, right? Right. And generally speaking, there's at least two people in the cockpit, despite the fact that the overwhelming number of actual flying times are actually done by computer. Right. Uh, nobody would tolerate it. They wouldn't think it was a smart idea. But I can tell you, because I've been in the room, I've been in the, in the transportation forums uh, where the government and the industry are, are testifying and the industry's position is that if we want to continue doing the safe thing or the safer thing that is the way that the industry has been sustained for 150 years we have to provide documentation that it reduces accidents or whatever like that whereas if they want to do something brand new untested nobody's ever done well, actually, have done it a little bit, but you know, basically, essentially, not not a practice that uh, that makes sense to most people. They are not required to produce any kind of evidence whatsoever. Right. That, right. Um, and it, it, actually, some of this is is just about money, and some of it is about the fact that, in fact, railroad managers who overwhelmingly don't know anything about running trains hate their own workforce. Hmm. They would much rather not have a workforce that they have to, you know, answer to or, you know, answer questions or anything like that. And I know. And one more thing on the crew thing, just to hammer it home. I mean, and this was on top of the fact that, like you said, the trains are getting longer and longer and heavier and heavier. So, you know, if you look at a, you know, if you went back to what you were talking about, you know, about the crew per per foot or (laughs) crew per for weight or something like that, then, you know, you're actually getting less and less crew, even with the same number of crew, because these trains are getting more and more out of control, longer, harder to see the further portions of the train, I would imagine, and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. So the the train that wrecked in East Palestine was 150 cars, 149 cars, I guess. The train that wrecked the next week in Springfield, Illinois, was... 175 if i remember correctly so that's like and, two, that was like two miles or something in east palestine so it was even longer yeah, than- and and uh, you know the in the old days and i'm not necessarily saying that we need to go back to caboose right but but the but the point of the caboose back in the day was that there was somebody watching from the rear of the train who can look forward along the whole line of the train and see problems you cannot even if the people on the head end of that train were doing nothing but looking at the rear through the through the mirrors. There, there's a reasonable chance that they might not have been able to see the smoke and the flames and the right. whatnot. The question is, is how safe do you want to be? And and the, it's a legitimate question. And we did it in the past. The only difference is, is that they don't want to spend that money. Right. And if you were asked workers and the people that live in the cities where the trains go through and the towns where the trains go through, I'd guess that they would say they want to err on the side of being uh, more safe, uh, you know, so, so called better safe than sorry, you might say uh, mm-hmm. uh, they wouldn't want to be, you know, risking their, their lives if they knew Particularly, the details of what's going on. If, if you live in a town and like I live in a town like this now in Washington, DC, 
I came back from Lac Megantic in 2016 and the, the after you know I got woken up the next morning with a phone call that a train was derailed right in the middle of DC a freight train was very similar situation it was another axle failure nobody killed no real serious chemicals involved but seven cars out of 175 I think mm-hmm. uh, uh, derailed in the middle it was the train was actually in uh, two states at that point I think but uh, the the reason I mention it is because the, there's no longer any industrial work served by trains in Washington, D.C. Right. So the, the, the people who live here pay the price with no benefit in return. The, if you lived in, and I don't know what the story in East Palestine is, but I'm willing to bet you there's no important industrial complexes that are served by rail there. So right. they're paying the price with nothing in return. Right. And, and, you know, and that brings us to uh, this last point that we talked about last time, and it's getting some more attention now is this idea of nationalizing the railroads, um, you know, public or public ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that mean to you? And, and how do you and, you know, how, how would you envision that happening? What's the his, what's the history there? Yes, well, I'm proud to say that Railroad Workers United has uh, uh, taken, shall we say, the bull by the horns in a sense, a gorilla that's in the room. Everybody in the country, railroad workers, no exception, are, are talking about the dysfunctionality of the national rail transportation system. And even though it's divided into seven companies, the basic situation is the same on every one of them. And uh, we actually see that you know, people get it. There's a history to this, of course. In both the United States and Canada, there have been at least a couple of different situations where the government had to step in when the private operation was so bad, so failed, so incapable of providing the the safety and and more importantly to to many, the service that right. um, uh, was needed that they had to do that. And one of the instances was at the time of the First World War. Uh, and that's one that a lot of people talk about. Another was uh, in the United States with the creation of the Consolidated Rail Corporation, which eventually became Conrail and Amtrak, or in Canada, the the process of nationalization of the Canadian National. The, the And so none of these things are happening now. That's a whole conversation we could have. But the, the fact of the matter is that we already have, it's an asked and answered question. The, the, the private operators are not capable of, of running the trains safely and with the service that we must have. What kind of a country do you want to live in? This is the question that's posed. Do we want to have one where these things serve all of the stakeholders or is it only for the rich? Is it only right. for the benefit of the shareholders? One thing on every one of the class one railroads is that they've figured out how to make money without running trains. And you might say, well, that's you know smart business for them. But the public is sitting there thinking that they're going to run trains. They're going to run right. trains to make sure we get our products. They're going to run trains to make sure we have our work. And they're increasingly not doing that. Yep. It's, I was reading in, uh, uh, you know, Mother Jones uh, from last year, uh, they had one about looting America. It was called just about, you know, these private equity firms that are buying up everything. You know, you have hedge funds, private private equity firms and all these other things. And like you said, 
they're not there to uh, provide a service, so to speak, which uh, people might assume is the uh, is the outcome. They're not there to provide housing or to provide health care or to provide uh, functioning train uh, rail system, <laughs> you know, uh, electricity, you name it. Yeah. Yep. They're there to make money. You know, if that's tax breaks, if that's, you know, getting rid of workers, selling off uh, uh, capital or selling off some of the the things that they use, whatever, whatever it takes, they're going to make money. And it has nothing to do with the uh, functioning service. So, yeah, one of the things we would like to do while we're talking, I mean, of course, we want to talk about the public ownership of the rails, but we also want to make sure that this is un- should be understood best as a conversation that's in the same context as what's wrong with healthcare, right. the public section related to healthcare, the public section that's related to education, the public you know, section that's related to the post office, et cetera. All of these things are under attack. You know this personally. Right. Uh, and uh, that this is in its own way. Uh, and so the, the railroads is, is just another part of that. And even though they're privately held, there's this sort of this understanding that they're supposed to provide a public service and they're increasingly not doing it. Well, I really appreciate you speaking with me. I, um, you know, support this work and I support, uh, you know, the move to put uh, all these things that provide a public good into uh, public ownership so that we can actually uh, attempt to then exert the control we should be already exerting over these uh, public goods to uh, make them what we need and to make them serve uh, the public and workers, etc. Is there anything else you want to say before you go? No, but I will say that, you know, uh, the 10-year anniversary for Megantic is coming up. It's July 6th. And I hope that in your community and in all the different communities over the country, there will be people who will remember it. The big problem in general with many of the things that you and I have talked about is that people forget. They forget that there's a history to these things. Uh, you know, right now, the, the news cycle was dominated by the East Palestine wreck, but increasingly that won't be true. It'll pop its head up again here and there. But uh with Megantic, there are so many people now that that don't know that story, which is so critical. And what we know for a fact is if you if if you forget it, it will happen again. We can guarantee that. Well, I really appreciate you speaking with me. And that's what we're trying to do here is keep this in the uh, uh, in the front of people's minds. So thanks, Fritz. Thank you, Nick. Talk to you later. Yep. Bye bye. Okay. And that's our special thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.